0: All right, I'm going to preach an odd sermon to you this morning, so if you'll bear with me, I don't really have a text, I've got four different places we're going to visit, and I've basically given you the outline right there, is uh, going through this, so i gonna break tradition a little bit in in going through here, but uh, let me kind of explain what we're going to do. Let me celebrate Easter we of course are celebrating the fact that Christ came he lived he died he rose again for us the salvation we have through Christ so when we're going through this week we're we're mindful of, of the saga of man's fall into sin their need of redemption and God providing that salvation to us. You know, and this story really truly if I were to go back and say where does it begin? It goes back into all eternity. When does it end? It goes forward to all eternity. It has no real beginning, it has no end. Its author and its hero have no beginning and no end. But what I want to do today is kind of take a larger view of the story of the redemption of mankind. And not just the Easter story. The Easter story is going to play part of it. That's going to be point number three when we get there. But I want to take a bigger picture view of the saga of the redemption of mankind. So with your kind indulgence this morning, I want to examine that story in a series of four acts. Each act, like in a drama, each will have a different scene. And each, I think, is important in seeing the overarching picture of what God did for us in salvation. And the common theme is that each one of these is set in a garden. The last one might be a little bit of a stretch, but we'll get there. But the first three are definitely set in gardens. So I want to introduce to you our first act here this morning. The setting is the Garden of Eden. The earth is new. Life is new. God looked down after the days of creation and said, It is good. All that was created, it was perfect. It was whole. It was a pristine, unbroken world in which God made a very special place this Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter number 2 and verse number 8 says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. Now, there's people say, well, where is that at? And the answer is, it's somewhere right around here in Wise County. I hadn't quite figured it out yet, but it's somewhere, if it ain't in Wise County, it's definitely in Texas, amen. It? it is somewhere over in the Middle East somewhere, uh, but uh, there's you can talk about that all you want to, but Anyway, after God created everything, He created the mountains and the valleys and the the seas and the oceans the forests, He makes this very, very special place. And why is this place special? Why did He spend some extra time making this garden? Well, the rest of verse 8 says, And there He put the man whom He had formed. It was a place for mankind. Now, let me tell you that man was the pinnacle of God's creation. We can look out and see the stars at night and the moon. We can see the sun. You can see the earth. You can look all over the beauties of this universe, but none of those are the height of God's creation. All those, God simply said, let there be fill in the blank, and they were. But when it came time for man, God did something a little bit different. In Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And he didn't just speak man into existence. He could have. He could have just said, Let there be a man, and there will be a man. But no, God rolled up his sleeves. He got his hands dirty. Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed a man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. When man was created, I think created in perfection and created in innocency. They did not know sin, but they were created with a free will. And man, when I say man, Adam and Eve, placed in this perfect place, this Garden of Eden. Perfect relationship, a husband and a wife, perfect helpmeets for each other. You think, my, how much better, how much more beautiful, how much more perfect could it get? Yet, all would not stay idyllic and serene. For Satan came into the garden, you say, boy, is this a myth? You, is this like an ace of, No, this really happened. There really was a man named Adam, a woman named Eve, and they really did succumb to the temptation of the devil. But Satan came, he deceived Eve into breaking the only rule God had imposed on mankind. I can sympathize with God. It seems like when you tell your kids, don't do that. What do they want to do? That. But God had told mankind in Genesis 2, verse 16, it says, "Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die." And Eve broke that commandment, being deceived. But Adam was not fooled. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 14 that Adam was not deceived. Jewish traditions actually say that Adam was nearby and overheard and saw the conversation. And that he knew full well what he was doing. He knew the cost of his action. What happened in the garden? Well, sin entered the scene. Mankind was no longer innocent. In fact, They knew they were sinful. When God came to spend time with them again, what did they do? They tried to hide themselves because they knew they had done wrong. They knew guilt for the first time. No, mankind was no longer perfect or innocent. No, mankind was now broken, was now depraved. And the Bible teaches us that those consequences didn't just affect Adam and Eve. No, it passed down from generation to generation to generation through their descendants. Romans chapter 5, verse number 12, Paul wrote, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So as we close the scene in this first act of our drama of the redemption of mankind, we see... Adam and Eve escorted from the Garden of Eden. And we realize that we humans are all sinners. We're all guilty before God, all fall short of the glory and the perfection of God. We've all likewise been alienated from God. It's a tragic scene. In fact, I'd say, you'd go so far as to say, a murder took place there, a spiritual murder in the garden. As we close that scene, we wonder well, what will happen? Is there hope? What will happen with mankind? Will man be redeemed? Well, let's go on to the next act, our second act. We fast forward a number of years, a couple of millennia at least. Actually, I think about four millennia, if I remember correctly. This garden. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane. It's situated just outside the walls of Jerusalem. In fact, you could go there today and they'll take you outside the, the Jerusalem there and they'll take you to the place that tradition says this was. It was an olive orchard. In fact, the very name of it, means, Gethsemane means oil press where they would harvest the, the olives and then press them for their oil. It's a quiet place. A place for meditation. A place for peace. A place to get away from the hustle and bustle uh, inside of Jerusalem. And here on this night as we enter into this garden, the moon is not quite full, but there's quite a bit of moonlight coming down through the branches and there's no fruit yet. The harvest won't be till fall, but perhaps there's some blossoms or some little leaves starting to bud out at springtime. And here, late into the night, there comes a group of twelve men. We see as eight of them are left in one place and four continue on. Those Of those, three are left and one continues on. And We approach him in this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who is this figure? Well, he was born about 33 and a half years before this night. He was born during a census that was taken by the Roman government. He was born in a town called Bethlehem, just about seven miles south of the Garden of Gethsemane in Jerusalem. He was raised in a town called Nazareth, about 65 miles north of there. Yet, the humility of his birth and his upbringing could not hide the fact there was something special about this man. At the age of 30, he began to preach. He began to teach. He began to work miracles. And he traveled the land of Israel. And his deeds are recorded in four different books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those that heard Him gave this testimony in John chapter 7, verse 46. Never man spake like this man. My, what a speaker He must have been. What a teacher. His sermons, His actions, and my, the miracles. He turned water into wine. First miracle He did. He calmed the storm. He raised the dead. Those miracles, those actions, they caught the attention of the nation. I think everybody in Israel knew Him. I think they all knew who He was, who He claimed to be. I I would go so far to say, I think they all saw Him and heard Him. I think every one of those Jews at some point saw Christ and heard Him. And all wondered if He was the fulfillment of prophecy. That he would be the Messiah, the promised coming king that would sit on the throne of David. There was anticipation that these prophecies would be fulfilled. And yet here he is, and he's alone in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's tried to warn his followers, we talked about that in Sunday school, that about twenty-four hours from this time he's going to be dead. He will be arrested. He will be tried, a mockery of a trial. He will be beaten. He will be mocked. He will be crucified. And those events, those aren't a tragedy. That was the reason why he came. In fact, when he's tried, the highest authority in the land, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, could only pronounce, I find no fault in him. He was spotless. He was pure. Who was this man? His name was Jesus. He was the Son of God. He had come to be the sacrifice, the spotless Lamb of God for the sins of mankind. And here he is in the garden. He knows the burden he is to bear. The sins of the world. My sins, your sins, the sins of every human being that's ever lived. He knew the physical agony he would endure. And I'm not sure there is a worse death than the death of the cross. And you add on top of that the beatings and things that he went through. Just unimaginable. In fact, if you take the prophecy exactly literally, I think it was Isaiah said, they said basically his face was marred beyond recognition. But basically if you look at that language in Hebrew, it sounds like he didn't even look human was how bad he had been beaten. He knew the price he would pay. And here he is. He's consecrating himself to the work ahead. He's stealing his humanity against the horrors that lay ahead. If you listen close, you'll hear him pray. Luke 22:42, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Scripture tells us that an angel comes and strengthens him. They say if you look upon him at this time, he's in such agony that there is blood coming like sweat. That's a sign of extreme stress. I forget the technical term for it. But basically the blood vessels, the capillaries and things inside of your sweat glands bursting from stress. I want to close the scene here. Christ is prepared for the cross. He will suffer as no human being has ever suffered. In fact, you can hear the echo through eternity of Him crying out, My God! My God! Why hast Thou forsaken Me? Why? Because He had taken upon Him our sins. He would die the excruciating death of the Roman cross and He would die in our place. I want to move to the next scene. This one's just a few days later. This scene is what's called the garden tomb. In John chapter 19, verse number 41, this description is given. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. A tomb inside of a garden. And as we enter this scene. It's evening of the first day of the week, what we would call Saturday night. The Jewish days begin at sundown. We've talked about that. Three days before, my, the events that took place, Christ our Lord had died on the cross as the prophets had predicted. As Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 8, He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was He stricken. It was the sacrifice for the sins of man. All that had been committed since Adam and Eve first tasted that forbidden fruit. All that were committed then, and now even 2,000 years later, all the sins that have compiled, all the sins that ever will be, even going into the future, all the sins from the garden till when time is no more were laid upon Him. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two followers, Came and took the body, and they took it to this tomb in this garden. Hastily prepared it, didn't finish with the proper customs to prepare the body because there was a holy day coming up, and they had to hurry. So they put him in the tomb, lay the body there. A Roman guard is stationed. Even his enemies understood. He said, "I will rise again after three days," and they wanted to guard. So, nobody would steal the body and claim he had risen from the dead. And on this evening, the first day of the week, I think it's quiet. You're coming off the Jewish Sabbath, there's not a lot of activity going on. There's a bunch of people for the Passover in Jerusalem, but I think it's quiet because of the Passover. It's still, it's tranquil. And there's the guards, they're watching. They're knowing in the back of their mind, you know, there might be something happened. We need to look out. There might be somebody coming to try to steal this body. And something did happen in the garden that night. An earthquake shook the hillside. Angels descended from heaven. The guard fainted away at the sight. The stone was rolled back to reveal the tomb was missing its occupant. For Christ had risen From the dead in our first garden scene mankind fell into sin and judgment in our second garden scene Christ prepared himself to bear that sin and to bear the judgment of God for us and in this third garden scene the price of redemption of man was paid and accepted Christ is victorious over sin over death over the grave know the victory we have in Christ, the terrible cost of our sins, paid in full by the blood of the Lamb. What does that empty tomb mean? It means that God had accepted the payment. Isaiah 53, 11, one of my favorite passages from Isaiah 53. He, shall, he talking about God, shall see the travail of his, talking about Christ's soul, God would see what Christ did and shall be satisfied. God said, that payment is what I need to redeem mankind. What does the empty tomb mean? It means we have hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. You know, I've been waiting anxiously for the last few weeks for the blue bonnets to come up out here on the hillside. And I actually stopped the first day when I saw the first few, there was about a dozen spread out. I stopped. I took a picture of three of them. I was excited. The blue bonnets were back. And I thought to myself when I took, took that picture of those, did I think those were going to be the only three blue bonnets? No, I was ready. In fact, I'm still waiting. I think the freeze is, I, I heard it was going to delay them. I'm afraid it may have got some of ours. But I, when I saw those three or four blue bonnets, I thought pretty soon that hillside is going to be covered in them. That was a promise of more flowers to come. Let me tell you something. When Christ rose from the dead, it was a promise that there's more that will also rise from the dead. There's victory for you and me. There's hope beyond the grave because He lives. And the greatest victory was sealed that night at the garden tomb. All of eternity pivoted when Christ arose. It's a victory that you and I can grasp on to for hope for tomorrow and hope for today. But I want to visit one more place to finish this saga, this drama of the redemption of mankind. So if you'll bear with me, I want to go to one more place. This scene is literally paradise. Paradise you find the description in the last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation. There's a new heaven and a new earth. They're not marred and broken by sin's presence or by sin's power. This is perfection, purity, holy. This is the final destination for those who accept God's gift of salvation. When is this? My goodness, there's a lot that has to happen. Read Revelation. Read Daniel. There's a rapture. There's tribulation. The battle of Armageddon. Christ's millennial kingdom on earth. The final judgment where the lost stand before God one last time. But this scene comes in, this place. And it's really not the end either. Because this scene continues on for eternity. What a place it will be. The descriptions, like I say, in Revelation 21 and 22. First, we will be with God forevermore. Revelation 21, 3. And I, John here bearing witness to this, heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God today we worship a God we haven't seen he's in heaven I know he's all around us he's everywhere but you know we don't see there will come a day we will live next door to God that's what I'm the tabernacle that's what I'm talking about that's where God lives he will live with us we will be with him second we will only know peace and joy. And God shall wipe away, verse 4 of chapter 21, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. It will be glorious beyond description. Description there, it's city walls, uh, twelve foundations, twelve gates of pearl, golden street and a light that shines through it all. And not just sunlight, not just the light of, a, uh, of some powerful source, but the light of the very glory and the presence of God shining through. So, well, doesn't sound much like a garden. That's why I said Revelation 22, and I put that up there as the text. Revelation 22, verse 1. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and out of the the Lamb and in the midst of the street of it on either side of the river there was a tree of life which bare 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation verse 3 and there shall be no more curse we could continue going on but I want to stop there the first garden we looked at the Garden of Eden it was a beautiful place I can't even imagine how beautiful it must have been when God took special time to create that place it had a river also It had a tree of life also but Eden and all its glory Eden and all its splendor and I'll put this far even today there are beautiful parts of this world I've been down Smoky Mountains, Smoky Mountains are beautiful. Over Pigeon Forge area, been through there. Bluegrass region up there around Lexington, Kentucky, where I went to Bible Culture. Oh, that is a beautiful, beautiful place. I've been over the Rocky Mountains, seen Their Majesty. Like I said, I've been in Texas. I know what heaven ought to look like. But even the most glorious, most beautiful, postcard-ready picture you can have here on Earth, is nothing compared to the glory that waits the future for the child of God. And Eden in all its glory, with that river and the tree of life it had, it was but a foreshadowing of the beauty and the glory of this place, of this garden. For Eden's glory faded with the introduction of sin. But this, this new Eden, this new heaven, this new earth. I read in Revelation 22, verse 3, there shall be no more curse. Why there's no more curse? Because there's no more sin. Let me review here real quick. In this drama, we have seen the saga of man's fall and redemption. For man's sin and punishment in the Garden of Eden To Christ's sacrifice that He prepared Himself for in the Garden of Gethsemane. To the victory and hope that the empty tomb proclaimed. And all the way to the far reaches of eternity to the future glory that awaits the children of God. Now I tell you, I think when you read all of that and you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you know what He did, you know what He's going to do and you know what lies ahead, I think you can only cry out just like John did in the end, Revelation 22, verse 20. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Can't wait to get where we're going. And I think there's only one last practical question that must be examined. We've talked about mankind and what happened that they sinned. We've all sinned, the Bible is very clear on that. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. None of us are perfect. I tried one time when I was younger to be perfect, and I made it about half a day until my sister made me mad. And she just needed that big red handprint on her back. I don't care how hard you try, you will never be perfect. You will falter, you will fail. And even if you were to start today and be perfect, you still have a history, you still have a past. We humans are broken. And because we are broken, because we've all sinned, there is a punishment. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. There was a punishment that was there. There is a punishment, there is a judgment, there is a sentence, there is a doom that is placed upon sinners by the almighty righteous judge, the God of this universe. Romans 5 verse 12 says wherefore as by one man sin into the world and death by sin that's talking about Adam so death passed upon all men for they all have sinned. and that's not just a physical death our hearts start stopping our brains stopping to function this is death and hell this is an eternal death you'll find that over in the book of Revelation that description that all the, those who reject Christ all those whose name are not written in the Lamb's book of life are cast out into the lake of fire. And it says, this is the second death, eternal death. But the good news this morning, as I've played out in this story, yes, we are sinners. Yes, we are under judgment from God. But the good news, we have a Savior. First John chapter 2, verse 2. And He, talking about Christ, is the propitiation, the payment for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. To say, well, Jesus, He didn't really love me. No, no Jesus loved you. How do I know that? Because He died for you. So, well, no one ever loved me. I said, well, you don't know the love of Jesus. In your most unlovable circumstances, in your most unlovable position, Christ still said, I love you enough to suffer the cross, to bleed and to die. For you. Christ died for all mankind. He was buried, he rose again. And that gospel is for all. That if, Romans 10, verse 9, if, notice there's an if there. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. We talked about that in Sunday school. Have to believe that he died and he rose again, thou shalt be saved. It says, if. There's still a condition. Mankind was a sinner. Christ came to be the payment for our sins. But there's still an if statement. There's still a divider right here. And what is that? That is, what will you do with Christ? You can hear the story of how we need a Savior. You can hear what Jesus did. Well, he bought our salvation for us, but there's still something we must do. So, well, what is it? I'll go out. I'll conquer a city. I'll take over the world. I'll, I'll pay whatever price. What price is it he asks? He asks for simple faith. in him. He asks you to do nothing. In fact, nothing we can do. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. Grace, grace is unmerited favor. Not of works, lest any man should boast. If we... Did one thing to earn salvation then Christ wasted his time on the cross but we can do nothing and that's why Christ came to die for us if you've accepted that free gift this morning then you ought to be able to praise God because you understand what Easter is about you understand the hope that we have in our hearts now and the hope we have for a future but if you have not accepted that free gift of salvation I'm gonna say No better time than the present. We can get that settled. I'd be more than happy to take the Bible this morning and show you a little bit more about what I'm talking about, how Christ died for our sins. That he loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You want to get down to it? It's Easter. What's the story of Easter? The story of Easter. It's the story of a Savior who loved us. What's the story of Easter? It's the story of hope that we can have eternal life through Him. What is the story of Easter? That mankind may be redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. That's what we celebrate here this morning. And as I've tried to lay out for you here in this tale of four gardens. From the Garden of Eden to Gethsemane to the Garden Tomb and on to the paradise that awaits. The love, the power of God on display towards us. We are fools if we do not fall on our face and praise God for what he has done for us. We'll have a short time of invitation here this morning. Musicians will come. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. The altar will be open. You'll be free to come down here and pray. Like I say, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you can come forward. You can catch me after the service. I'll be more than happy to share with you a little bit more about what it means to know your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for what Easter means. I thank you for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy of all the praise all the honor that we can bestow upon him or that you loved us enough to suffer and die or that you offer that free gift of salvation to all who will accept it or we just stand in amazement at your goodness to us Lord on this Easter we celebrate the resurrection but we celebrate the fact that salvation was paid for and that we who are sinners can be redeemed and reunited and be part of the family of God. Lord, I pray that you just drive these simple truths home in our heart this morning to see the grand eternal scale of the Easter story. Lord, I pray that you challenge our hearts with this simple, simple telling of what you've done for us. Lord, speak to our hearts now, praise in our holy name. Amen.